Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, and I am delighted that with us today again is our esteemed colleague, Greg Moran. We're going to be talking, unfortunately, today about how we anticipate leading in a recession because many of our current leaders haven't had to lead in this kind of an era. Greg, welcome. Do you want to tell our listeners a few sentences about yourself? Sure. Great to be back. Greg Moran, I'm the uh, Chief Operating Officer of AWARE. AWARE is a enterprise SaaS company based here in Columbus. Relevant to this conversation, you were the Chief Strategy Officer at Ford in 2008. Yes, that's true. So uh, my background is largely in large corporate IT and strategy. And I worked at Ford in the early 2000s and leading into the recession, the last one we had, which was in 2008, is when it really became a countrywide recession. But in the large corporate world, we'd been experiencing the tightening of capital, et cetera, for a couple of years at that point. And I was running strategy at Ford. And I'm proud to say I was part of a team that helped Ford weather the storm of that recession and do so without government bailouts, et cetera. That was, uh, I think, a combination of good fortune, being lucky in our timing, but also a lot of strategy work that went into that. So it was a time I learned from immensely, I think I would say, and I was proud to be part of a team. One of the things I'm most curious about, what indicators are you seeing through the lens of a strategy person that causes you to think this isn't just going to evaporate? I'm not an economist, so I try not to get into the debate of when exactly we're officially in a recession. But I do think it's easy to look at the symptoms that we're seeing and say, we're experiencing symptoms of a recession. And every recession has its own personality. I mean, when you look at the 2008 recession, it had a inordinate an impact on middle-income people because a lot of it was tied up in these mortgage vehicles that turned out were super risky. And when the economy began to tighten and valuations on homes began to drop, which is beginning to happen now again, one of the things that's different then versus now is then you had a whole bunch of people with mortgages that became upside down because they had declining balance mortgages and products that today you really don't see in the marketplace because they were, quite frankly, at best irresponsible. And in some cases, you might argue worse than that. Today, we don't have that particular risk, but you have some different risks. In a typical recession, you tend to see unemployment numbers start to climb. We're in a situation now where we're at full employment, and in fact, we have a big gap in the market for workers to fill roles, but yet we're still feeling the effects of a recession in the form of high inflation numbers and in the form of then tightening capital markets, right? Which give you less access to capital, which really starts to pinch, right? And so you're seeing valuations on companies drop in the form of their stock price or in the private market, you're seeing valuations drop in the venture capital world, and you're seeing access to capital really just get squeezed. Like how to qualify for a mortgage is getting harder and harder how to qualify for a business loan, which is how companies fund growth, is getting harder and harder. So you're starting to see those sorts of effects now. I was in a client meeting a couple days ago when we were talking about how do they take a more defensive stance now in anticipation of they happen to be in the hospitality industry in expectation that consumers are already pulling back. This isn't next year. This is now. 
the idea of pressure testing, how much do they pull back and what does that look like? So they're still equipped to grow at the points where this is plausible and they're being responsible in running the enterprise so that they come out at the end healthy. Right. And the trick of it is now is really six months from now when it comes to corporate decision making, right? The decisions you make today, the effects of that will be felt off in the future. Mm -hmm. And if you don't make some of those decisions now, you can find yourself in a position where that decision is not available to you anymore. So I'll use as an example, going back to the last recession, one of the reasons that Ford was able to avoid a government bailout is because Ford was a privately held, uh, I should say closely held public company. It wasn't privately held, but closely held. So the Ford family still controls some 40% of the voting stock of Ford, even though they actually own only about 2% of the company. What that allows Ford to do is make long-term decisions regardless of what the analyst feedback is. So in early 2006, we began to really look at what was happening in the markets and what we needed to do to compete as a company and began to lay the groundwork for going and getting the capital we needed to weather the storm. The analysts would have never recommended we do that. Right. So the stock analyst, you do quarterly meetings because we were a public company. But the difference was Ford could go against the will of the analyst because they could play long ball because they had the vote of the Ford family to be able to drive any specific corporate agenda item. And we took the decision to go borrow as much money as we could when the money was still available. And we locked in, I think it was somewhere around a $22 billion loan by the end of 2006. By January, February of 2007, the capital markets had locked down. You weren't getting the money. So you look at like GM's situation, they're a true public company. They're stuck with having to not be able to go against the will of the shareholders. And so while they saw all the same things we did, we weren't any smarter than they are. Those are smart economists. They could see what was happening, but they couldn't do anything about it because they couldn't get it past the shareholders. And so they were in a much tougher situation. And suddenly you find them in January, February of 2007, unable to get access to capital. And the risk of them not getting access to capital was the company beginning to default on some of its long-term debt obligations, those sorts of things. And the house of cards begins to crumble. And so why did the government take the decision to bail out GM? Because the impact of a GM failing was not GM. It was GM and all of its suppliers and all of their suppliers. So you're looking at an ecosystem of two, three million jobs, not three, four hundred thousand jobs. That kind of shock to the employment markets going into a recession just accelerates you, right? You're going off the cliff. And so, you know, when I talk to people about it today, you'll find people who are like, well, I'm really not a fan of government bailouts. And I, I can understand the sentiment, but you've got to look at the larger context and say, sometimes you've got to do a bad thing to stop a worse thing from happening. So as we think about what's happening today, then, who do you think will be impacted most? You talked about the mid-range folks in 2008 because of the mortgage crisis. Now we've got supply chain issues. You've got a lot of money in the system because of COVID relief. The economics are different. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because I do think in this case, government policy is going to have an inordinate impact on it. 
we've been putting a lot of money into the system to compensate for potential impacts to income at the lower end of the income ranges, right? Our ability to sustain that, both from a policy standpoint and from a practical standpoint, is beginning to wane. And it's beginning to wane just at the time when things are costing more and more, right? So you've got this insidious doom loop that's occurring right now around inflation that's taking up prices for people who have less and less access to capital unless they go find a job. I suppose if there's a silver lining, there are lots of jobs available. So we're going to see a lot of people get faced with the reality of, okay, I was able to make ends meet off of the programs that I was tapping into, maybe work less, maybe retire earlier than I thought I was going to be able to, and they're going to have to rethink some of those decisions and really re-engage in the economy. Now, the challenge is going to come as the ripple effects of inflation begin to start hitting the companies that can employ them, those job opportunities are going to get lower and lower. So right now we have a fairly substantial gap between the number of employees available and the number of jobs available. There's way more jobs than there are people. It's going to narrow. We'll see that start to crunch down. And when that crunches down, you start to feel more like a classic recession in that people who want jobs can't find them because the jobs are starting to go away because the companies that have the jobs are earning less revenue. So certainly any large company in a discretionary category is something to pay a lot of attention to, right? So you talk about hospitality, travel is not entirely discretionary, but to some degree is discretionary and certainly some hospitality industry players cater more to leisure travel than they do business travel. Well, and I'm thinking of more of the infrastructure travel. If you're building our local Intel plant, we're going to have a lot of construction folks living locally for a period of time, some of them housed in hotels. That probably falls then under the business category, just like you and I jumping on a plane to go see somebody. Yeah, and a lot of that's going to be the extended stay Americas rather than the classic sort of hotel chains, hospitality chains, because it's just financially more viable. I remember when I first went to work for Ford, the way the company paid your move package included just a slug of money that you could use for renting an apartment while you were looking for a house. I, I was just by myself, my family was going to be still here in Columbus for some period of time. And rather than pay $3,000 a month for a furnished corporate apartment, I actually just rented a room in an extended stay America. And every single other person in that extended stay was either laying carbon fiber or working on a construction project or something like that. So that's that market. And it'll be interesting to see how much of a slowdown there is on some of these big construction projects because they're very capital intensive. Some certainly will. And yet at this point, we're still facing huge housing shortages. Yes. And I think what's going to happen, because the housing shortages tend to be very localized. It's not everywhere in Columbus. It's where people want to live in Columbus. And we're going to be rethinking where we want to live when we're faced with the choices, right? And that's already beginning to happen. So new home sales are dropping off. New home construction is dropping off fairly rapidly. And I think we're going to see some rebalancing of that because there is more housing available in other places and necessity becomes the mother of invention. You go where you can afford to live. And I'm thinking more nationally and even globally, but I believe nationally we still have housing shortages as well. Absolutely. 
and specifically more affordable housing shortages. It hasn't been economically most attractive to invest in that type of housing because you could get a premium for more single family homes, those sorts of things. I mean, I look at the neighborhood that I live in and the prices there have gone up astronomically even in the last couple of years, right? And so why wouldn't you, if you were a construction company, focus on doing rehabs in an old established neighborhood where you're going to be able to command a 40, 50% premium on your investment versus multifamily homes where, quite frankly, that's not where people have traditionally been trying to get to live and the margins aren't as high. As the economy tightens, some of that rebalancing seems like it will need to happen. I agree. And I think that's where, as I was alluding to earlier, government policy can be so powerful, right? Because ultimately, some of the seed funding to start driving that construction is going to have to come from the public coffers. They're not going to come from private sources because private money is going to be harder to come by. So you're not a big fan of government assistance. Walk me through the rationale for policy and government coffers helping inform community-based decisions. The way I look at it is seeding an entire category of activity to the government is generally a bad idea in the sense that governments aren't really good at doing things, and they do things pretty inefficiently. So for me, sort of philosophically, you cede control of that stuff to a government entity only when you absolutely have to and for the sort of obvious things. And if you look at the original sort of framers of our Constitution, it was, you know, things like provide for the common defense. OK, we can all agree the government gets the tanks, right? Like, you know, let's not like, have that be a random thing. Right? But over time, of course, we've had both federal and state and local government begin to take over sort of more and more services as there have been less and less mechanisms at a community level to deal with them, partly just because of sheer scale and partly because the economy is very unforgiving. There's not a lot of slack in the economy when you're driving companies to be as profitable as possible. You know, so this concept of benevolent capitalism that was kind of enshrined in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations eludes us because we don't, A, have the same moral framework that we had in place at that time, and B, because competing on a global scale forces you to make decisions that don't leave a whole lot of slack in the system. We've been left with sort of these problems that don't get solved on a local level, and somebody quite appropriately at some point says, okay, we got to solve this. Right? It begins at the local level, and then it can move to the state level, and then you see it move to the federal level. And then, you know, you often have the policy wonks in Washington figuring out that they can get control of something and drive an agenda if they put money behind it. And you see a lot of that. And that's not a party thing, by the way. I'm not pointing out one party versus the other. They've both done this to great effect, which is to basically say to the states, we'll give you a bunch of money to fix your infrastructure. But here's the deal. You've got to agree to this, 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 and this, right? And so you end up getting sort of this amalgamation of policy agendas and maybe even well-intentioned grant programs, et cetera, those sorts of things that get all intermingled and it's really hard to untangle. I get nervous about that because they're really hard to untangle and they usually are consuming really large sums of money. And so I generally default to, we should try and figure out a way to solve these programs at a local level to the degree possible. You know, it's like the idea of public education to some degree. That's a great example of where we've kind of lost the plot on that. 
public education had its foundation in the one-room schoolhouse. So this was a group of families that got together and invested in the schoolhouse and hired a teacher to teach their children in the manner that was consistent with the way they wanted to have their children taught. When that's all been kind of blown up into these three, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand student school systems, where's the accountability to the agenda? And how would you even form consensus at that level of scale? How do you form consensus around the educational mandates for the Columbus City Schools? Because the Columbus City Schools span multiple communities with very different values, very different points of view on these things. And so you end up with this real lack of connection between the community that's paying for the public school system and the activities of the public school system. And I'm not taking a position one way or the other. I'm just describing the phenomenon when things get big enough and disconnected enough from the constituency, the accountability gets broken and it gets really hard to see what's going on. So that's really the background on my thinking around why do I focus so much on trying to find local solutions to local problems? It's because they tend to be way better aligned to the needs of that specific problem. And quicker to shift. Completely, right? They can adapt much more quickly. And a lot of that used to come through community organizations and religious organizations. And as that has dried up, it's left more and more of a vacuum around these things, right? And who's in the position to step into that vacuum? And in some cases, like addressing pandemic research and vaccines and things, and again, not making a political statement, but the government stepped in and accelerated the research and that produced brilliant results. Absolutely. And it couldn't have probably happened any other mm -hmm. way, right? We're not going to sort that problem out in Columbus, right? We don't have the resources. We don't have the information. We don't actually have even the ability to connect on a global level with the other organizations that might have insight. In a way, you can put that under that banner of provide for the common defense. It's almost <laughs> provide for the common welfare. It's just kind of like, all right, some things we've got to handle at kind of that level, particularly in a global economy. I know our topic is leadership and it seems like we're wandering, but it also feels like we're level setting. And one of the pieces of level setting, especially in an environment where it seems like everything is at odds and we have so many factions, you're pointing to there is work to be led at the community level, there's work to be led at the state level, there's work to be led at the corporate level, federal level, international level, and there's a lot that needs to be interconnected because our government can't or shouldn't do it alone, nor should, you know, pick big company, Apple, Google, JP right. Morgan, should also not be tasked with finding vaccines. Exactly. But not that they're absolved of accountability at the level at which they can make a difference, right? So, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase is a great example. J.P. Morgan Chase, I think quite wisely, has set up their charitable giving at a regional, at a local level. So they actually have a local leader that owns the process of deciding how to allocate funding inside of a specific community. And as a result of that, they've been able to do some really cool programs, you know, like micro banking and micro loans in communities that need to have innovation and businesses start for them to be vibrant, right? That's relevant in part of Detroit or part of Chicago, and maybe less relevant in other cities that don't have that same issue. So you've got the ability there by like having local leadership around how they allocate funding 
gives them the ability to participate at a ground level in ways that make a difference. Not every company has the luxury of the assets available to JP Morgan, but it's one company that I think has done a thoughtful job of figuring out how do we, in all of our global presence, stay connected at a local level and be relevant to the markets we serve. As leaders, that question of what's mine to do is a really important question. I completely agree. And I think it's part of the conversation that we need to have today is, you know, leading in a recession as a corporate leader should come with the accountability to be thoughtful about how you're part of the solution for your community at the level at which you can make a difference. At AWARE, we're a company of 120 people. My ability to impact Columbus writ large with almost 2 million people in the greater metro area is probably pretty limited, but it's not nothing. So what are we going to do as a company to responsibly participate in helping this city, this community weather this storm? Do you have a position on that yet? Not yet. I mean, there are things we are already doing making sure that our employment strategy matches the growth of the company very carefully. Don't get out over your skis. We pulled back our growth plan for the year because we're looking at the environment and we happen to serve large enterprises. In a recession, very predictably, large enterprises trim their budgets. And IT is one of the first budgets, and that's the budget we tap into. So it's kind of naive to not trim back your growth plans when you're going into an environment where it's very likely that large enterprises are going to be at least double scrutinizing every purchase. Why does that matter? Because if you get out over your skis and you're not thoughtful about what's happening in the larger macroeconomic environment, you're going to end up laying off a bunch of people in a recession where they can't get a job. That's a responsible thing you can do today. Don't get out over your skis because you're going to create a sudden inequity. We just saw it happen yesterday here in Columbus. Unfortunately, one of the larger startups in town, a company named Olive, laid off 450 people in a day. That's a substantial hit to the Columbus economy. I mean, we're a big economy, but not so big that 450 people losing their jobs isn't going to get noticed. Now, they weren't all Columbus-based people, but It's definitely a significant hit inside of our community, right? And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just using it to illustrate the fact that when you have a discontinuity like that, it's meaningful. It certainly is meaningful to those 450 people who today are sitting around going, am I going to be able to find a job in a recession? Certainly a job like the one I just left, right? And the answer is going to be yes for some, but not for all. And not at the same level. Clearly, there are jobs available. We talked about that at the beginning. But is it the same type of job with the same type of employee experience with the same career potential as the job you were in? For some, yes. For some, it won't be that. In private, people will say, well, wait till the next recession, all these people bidding up their salaries. Some of them will wish they had not because their jobs will be earlier to go because the salary doesn't support the work. Yes, and it's another thing that we have to think about as corporate leaders that is kind of the harder side of you've got to pay market rates to get the talent you want, Mm -hmm. but you also owe your shareholders paying market rates when the cost of that talent goes down. The question then becomes, how do you responsibly handle that? You know, do you go through pay cuts for your people? Is that fair? Or alternatively, do you let that person go and replace them with a cheaper resource? 
which is the more responsible thing to do. Do you have a position on that? Because neither one sounds good. I think it's painful. But at the end of the day, you know, you're a fiduciary for the company Mm -hmm. and your accountability is to not only your shareholders, but other stakeholders, including the community. And if you go through a situation where, like we talked about, where you have to lay off over 30% of your workforce in a day, I would argue that maybe you left it a little bit too long. There were some things that you could have seen, understood that would have at least reduced the impact of that. I don't know that there's a one size fits all scenario. Early days of COVID, we as a company saw it as a great opportunity for us because the products that we support in large companies were growing like wildfire post-COVID because it happens to be collaboration technology and it blew up. But to weather that storm, you know, we needed to cut our expenses and we belt tightened for two months, I think it was, over the course of the early months of COVID, meaning we took salary cuts across the board. And we sat down with the team and in full transparency said, There's a great opportunity here, but we have to weather the storm to be able to take advantage of it. So we're going to do this together. As in the leaders took it too. Leaders took the most. So you lead by example. We all took the biggest hit. And then throughout the rest of the company, everybody took maybe even a minimal haircut in some cases. But everybody contributed to us weathering that storm. And within two months, we were able to restore everybody's salary and then, you know, ultimately where we could make everybody whole on that gap. I think we've already found a way to do that with integrity, with our employee base. That mechanism may not work in certain types of companies. Ours is a largely salaried, in fact, almost entirely salaried workforce. It's a high skill workforce. They can play long ball. That doesn't necessarily work if you've got a factory floor or a distribution center where people might have alternatives available to them, right? And so they may have to take a different approach to that. Well, and if you're living truly week to week, it may also not work. An increasing percentage of Americans will be living week to week as the recession tightens. Because when you look at the basic categories, that's where we're taking the biggest inflation hit. Food, gas, housing. That's where the pain's being felt. For people who are middle income or higher, they can trade that off against discretionary spending categories. If you're in a category where you don't have discretionary categories, you can't defer that $5,000 vacation because you don't have a $5,000 vacation and you don't have $5,000. You're making other harder trade-offs. Well, and especially the gas piece. I think of housing and gas and the correlation that generally less expensive housing further outside of the city. If you're a critical worker, you're driving further. You've made that trade-off. Now gas has gone way up. How do you cover the cost of commuting to get to work? We're already beginning to see people try and figure out how to hack that. So you're seeing you know, more carpooling. You're seeing people look for more fuel-efficient vehicles. Although, ironically, the challenge we've got now is used vehicles are in one of those higher inflation categories. Folks that are facing that pressure and don't have a lot of alternatives in terms of how do they get to work more cost affordably. Uh, And that'll end up driving up more public transportation. And some of those things ultimately can have a virtuous side to them. As people realize, well, you know, I could have been doing this all along, right? You know, it actually does work for me. Yeah, I started my career in D.C. and we vanpooled. 
because parking was prohibitive. At a low entry-level salary, having my own car every day just wasn't an option. Yeah, I worked in downtown D.C., and I was a college student. I was interning, and I had to kind of hack together a way to get to work. I would drive to a friend's house who would then drive me to the Pentagon, and then I would take a train into the city from the Pentagon. And that was how I was able to do it affordably. The price I paid is about three and a half hours a day of commuting. Right. And that just was my life. But that was the trade off I needed to make to make it work. And I think a lot of people will be making creative trade offs at this point. Yeah, I think that's going to happen more and more. And really not a day goes by where you're not seeing stories like that in the paper. And that's what happens in a recession is that creativity kicks in and people find a way. It's sort of one of the characteristics of the basic human animal is we're survivors. We find a way. So I think you'll see a lot of creativity my advice when we talk about leading through a recession is be proactive. Don't wait till you have to, because some of the options will be going away if you wait. Making a decision when you can see what is going to happen usually affords you more options than if you wait till you don't have any more time. When you're out of money, your options go down. When you can see that you might be out of money is really the time to start making those decisions and cut back your lifestyle. Be proactive. Don't keep the game going as long as you can. Change the game as early as you can, and that'll pay you back dividends. And the same thing goes in corporate leadership. Be proactive, right? Be looking at your budget for next quarter before you get to next quarter. Don't anticipate that it's going to be hard. If you think it's going to be hard, assume it's going to be hard and start putting options on the table and talking about it transparently with your team. That's what real leadership looks like is you're avoiding the pain by being proactive. As I'm listening to you and thinking of a conversation I had earlier today, thinking through what do we do in my small company, we don't have a lot of cushion and part of the conversation this morning was, where do we focus our resources? When I was at Ford, prior to my strategy role, I ran a global application development organization of about 5,000 people. And as we really started to feel the financial pinch at Ford, which was well ahead of the recession and had way more to do with company performance. You know, we weren't building great cars. We were stretched way too thin from a capital standpoint. And so the company's financial performance was declining rapidly. We had months where we were burning off literally billions of free cash in a month, right? So as we were getting into that wedge, in the early stages of that, I was still running this big application development organization. And a lot of that application development was discretionary. So we become on the leading edge of... How do we cut costs inside of Ford so that we can continue to invest in cars and trucks that people want to buy? Sometimes that meant in the course of three months laying off a thousand people. And I will say as a leader, you take that stuff home with you at night and you've got to figure out how to balance that equation in your head because it's real. It's not a thousand people. It's a thousand people and their families. And those people you know. Absolutely. And so it's very personal. But you have to look at it through the lens of your fiduciary obligation to the other 4,000 people in your shop and the other 200,000 people that work at Ford. You do have to do that horrible math in your mind around, okay, this is going to be painful for that 1,000 people. But if I don't take that action now, it's not 1,000, it's two. And you have to live with that reality and say... Okay, with the information I have, the best choice I can make now is I have to lay off a thousand people because the implications of waiting are 
way worse for way more people. Mm -hmm. And it's a terrible piece of math to have to work with, but sometimes there aren't good options. There's only options that have varying degrees of pain. So thinking about at what point you pull the trigger, how do you look at the scenario, build the scenarios, look at the scenarios, set the triggers and know when you're approaching? Because that's the other thing I've seen. I actually, in a nonprofit I ran, we set the triggers, we didn't pull them and the results were bad. The first thing I would suggest is be honest about what your options are and what you think is going to happen. You know, one of the things we did at Ford when we were developing the strategy for turning around the company is I personally sat down with all of the senior executives of the company, everybody running a P&L or a critical staff function. So CFO, head of supply chain, head of HR, as well as the head of the Americas, head of Europe, head of Asia, all of that sat down. The first thing we did was align on a set of assumptions about the future of the automotive industry. And what I said to them as we sat down to have this conversation, it's not important that we're 100% right. It is very important that we all agree on what those assumptions are, because otherwise we'll have an incoherent strategy. So you don't have to be 100% right. You'd like to be more right than wrong. But I think to some degree, strategy work is a little bit imprecise. You're doing scenarios. Scenarios are, by definition, imprecise. So scenario planning is a good tool, but it's not a precise tool. So the reality is you don't know what the futures are. And so what you try to do is paint a picture of possible futures that are the smallest number of options possible that are very distinct from each other, because then it helps you make decisions. Each of those scenarios then gets predicated on a set of assumptions. And so what we did is align on the set of assumptions that we were going to use to craft a strategy for the company. And it was interesting and insightful that even across the, all of those markets, which are very distinct, the European market, the Asian market, the U.S. market, the South American market, all very different. As I sat and talked to all of those leaders, the basic tenets looked very similar. And once that team realized that they all saw the future somewhat similarly, it unlocked the dialogue, to your point, about, wow, if we all agree that's true, there's some things we need to be doing to deal with it. And it opened up this possibility, in my mind, of taking action way earlier than we otherwise would have. Because we would have just waited for the symptoms of those assumptions to hit and then going, wow, that's terrible. I really wish that hadn't have happened. I wonder if we could have avoided this. We had a conversation in our executive forum group, and the tenant was anti-fragile. The one participant was talking about, so I'm already looking at all of the scenarios and taking action. Some of it's scenario and pressure testing. Other is just, we know some of this is coming. It doesn't take a crystal ball. We see it. And you should be taking action as soon as you see it. Now, the action may not be as extreme, but that's the point, isn't it? You'd rather avoid extreme action. And so if you can do a little bit now, you can avoid a lot of pain later. And that can be upside stuff, too. Some of that can be investing in things that will put you in a position later. When you can see you should be taking action or you should be very explicit about why and when you aren't or why you're not taking action and when you will begin to define that scenario 
the modern iteration of scenario planning really emerged out of Shell Oil Company actually in a recession in the early 70s that had a huge impact on the gas industry. And Shell had kind of innovated this concept of scenario planning in the late 60s. And so they had a playbook for what happened in 1973. And so Shell weathered that storm better than all the other companies because they literally had the playbook on the shelf saying, this is a very plausible scenario. We should know what we're going to do. And I think that kind of thoughtfulness can really help a company in these sorts of times. And if you don't have it, it's okay. Start now. Start today. Yeah. Right. Get to work on it. And by the way, I'd encourage companies and leaders not to torture with themselves with all of the permutations. Discipline yourself to three or four most likely scenarios, because otherwise you can't act. You can't build action plans for 20 futures, but you might be able to for three or four and know how you're going to act when those things begin to happen. The scenarios have to be distinct from each other, and then you have to actually build a true action plan behind them. You know, one of the things I'm seeing so often in leaders right now is this intense stress-related response. So the fight, flight, freeze, one leader I've interacted with recently is just kind of frozen. He's a smart guy, but the pressure is keeping him from being as proactive as we're talking about. For leaders who are already feeling inundated, it gets worse, right, as we don't do something. And the tendency as a leader in those moments is to take more control of the day-to-day of the operations. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly the wrong thing to do. That's not where you can add value. And it's not where you're supposed to add value. You're supposed to be adding value with respect to things that are going to happen in the future. And so the discipline that says, I've got to trust my people to run things because I've got to be spending time on dealing with a scenario we didn't anticipate or a scenario we don't yet understand. That's hard. The discipline of leadership to say, we're going to make time to plan when there's so much day-to-day operational risk that your tendency is to like say, okay, I'm taking control of all the decisions, which is exactly the wrong thing to do because you're not going to cede strategy to your team and you've just taken operations away from them. So now you're also overpaying your team because you're doing their jobs. Right. And you're probably not doing their jobs as well as they can, and nobody's doing your job, which is the really scary part. But that takes discipline. That's hard because your tendency is to get into that mode of, okay, I got to take control. I'm the smartest person in the room. Otherwise, I wouldn't be the leader. (laughs) Right. And it's not always true. And it's certainly not necessarily the way to think about strategic decision making. And I'll point out, there was a study done where they looked into what emotions give you access to your greatest level of creativity, your greatest level of performance, and which ones close you off from more of your capabilities. And it turns out that the emotion that closes you off the most to your capability is fear because you're going into fight or flight mode and your body naturally prioritizes only the things you need to survive. So if you run across a tiger in the woods, the only thing your body's thinking about is how do I run? You're not thinking of anything else. Yeah. So if you're operating from a place of fear as a leader, you're going to be, by definition, 
limiting your capacity to lead because you're going to be closing yourself off to a lot of your capability because you're operating from a place of fear and you can get frozen. And that's a known phenomenon. We've all seen it where when the fear gets substantial enough, people can't act inside of it because they're closed off to all of their capabilities. I've watched that happen personally. I felt it in myself. Yeah, I've certainly seen it in others. I don't remember a time where I've been frozen, but I have seen people who were frozen. I remember when I was in Air Force officers training and we were doing rappelling. One of my fellow students and we're rappelling down a hundred foot wall and he just froze. And literally we had to send up people to get him down. He could not move. I haven't frozen to that degree, but I have certainly slowed my response time significantly. Well, interestingly, the emotion that opens us up to our maximum capability is gratefulness. How interesting is that? And how do you find your way to gratefulness in a moment like this that we're facing? That's that's whitewater, right? You know, whether or not you are able to tap into that entirely I think the lesson in it is look at the situation that you're in. You know, you have the privilege of leading, you're in a job, you're at a company you like, you're working with people you care about. There's a lot to be grateful for. And you have the luxury of action and strategy. If you look at it through that lens, you suddenly see possibility where you would have otherwise seen just closed doors. As you're talking about this, one of the things I work with my clients on is creating a very deliberate daily practice so that when I feel frozen, I have the habit of gratitude. There is some research about if I write a gratitude journal at five minutes a day, we're not talking, I have to spend an hour now writing some weird gratitude-y stuff. It's five minutes a day. Understanding how our brain operates and putting those in place so that when I am feeling overwhelmed, I was in a meeting yesterday and I was so angry, I was actually shaking. Knowing what to do in that moment so that I didn't do something really stupid, helpful. Having a sense of gratitude, taking some breaths, stepping away, talking to someone who would help me de-escalate the chemicals in my body. Mm -hmm. All of those things for us as leaders become more imperative. These aren't big expensive things and they're not terribly time consuming things. Yes, and they change the dynamic. There's two types of tension, right? And, and one is creative tension, and that's where you're running towards something. You have an end in mind. And the other type of tension is that tension where you're running from something. Uh, maybe the most powerful example I've heard is why dieting doesn't tend to work very well for people, because you're running away from being unhealthy. And the trick is to figure out how you decide you're going to be healthy. Because what happens when you're operating from a place of fear and the source of the fear is no longer there, what do you do? Well, you stop running. Mm. You stop moving, right? And that's what happens in diets. Somebody says, I want to lose 10 pounds. They lose 10 pounds. Now what? I start eating again. And then I gain 10 pounds. Oh, I can lose 10 pounds. <laughs> but there's no creative tension. There's nothing there that leads you beyond that first 10 pounds to whatever's next in healthy living for you. And that's where the vision piece right. is. What do I want my life to be? Or what do I want my company to be? Uh -huh. Or like your job is to be painting that picture, to be the source of clarity for your team around where you're trying to get. Because it creates that creative tension. And in creative tension, you find opportunity. You find new ways of doing things because you're running towards something. 
which was actually the thing I started to say that I was so angry about. I had the conversation with the person who is someone I appreciate deeply. We just sometimes get, humans get sideways. And part of what pulled us out of it was, this is the vision we're going toward. And the thing that happened put that at risk. And so having just good hygiene, how do you deal with this stuff? Those moments of meditation or whatever technique that you're using are ways to recenter and reconnect to what you're running to, Mm -hmm. not what you're facing right now in Mm -hmm. terms of fear and danger. I see that in every aspect of my life. I mountain bike a lot, right? Like even at that level, you experience this phenomenon. So mountain biking is one of these things where if you do it from a place of insecurity, like if you're worried you're going to fall and you're being tentative, it's 10 times more dangerous than if you're doing it confidently because mountain biking is about momentum. And if you lose momentum, you fall down. And if you're afraid you're going to lose momentum and so you're being tentative, you tend to get hung up and fall down. There's all these phrases in the mountain biking world like send it. Well, send it means do this with confidence. Own the moment and play to win. Don't play not to lose. Because if you play not to lose and you're tentative going off of a 10-foot drop, you're just going to drop off the (laughs) 10-foot drop and land on your head. And so even at that level that trivially unimportant inside the context of this conversation where we talk about people running companies and leading, but that same principle applies, right? And it's only when you have sort of confidence of knowing what you're trying to accomplish and then you embrace that play to win mentality that you actually then have the opportunity to see what's going on around you and Mm -hmm. see more creative options open up. But when you're operating from, well, I know this is bad, but I'm not dead yet. So I think I'll just stand still isn't going to lead you anywhere because the walls are going to close in, particularly in a recessionary environment. Your options are going to go down. Mm -hmm. So get yourself in a position where you're exercising some of those options so that you're now in a new context and new options will amazingly emerge. Right. I was at an event just literally six weeks ago with Jamie Dimon. It happened to be at the Vets Memorial and he was doing a small community session, probably 200 people. He was talking specifically about some of the investments that J.P. Morgan Chase was making from a community standpoint. But a lot of questions came up around, hey, are we going into a recession? What's going on? And Jamie made the observation. He said, I love competing in a recession because I know my competitors are going to operate from a place of fear and I'm going to operate from a place of opportunity and I'll emerge from the recession even stronger as a company. He's a person who plays to win. Absolutely a person who plays to win. And by the way, he's making decisions all the time that make sure when he has the opportunity to play to win, he can play to win. I've heard him talk about his entire career are things like fortress balance sheet. What does that mean? That means he never wants his balance sheet to be in a position that he can't weather a storm. So he's very disciplined about that because if you get to a point where there's weakness in your balance sheet and the economy turns on you, in the banking industry, you're out of options. So when he talks about fortress balance sheet, he means we've got to be ready for the unexpected because then we can weather the storm and we'll be able to make investments where everybody else is having to pull back. That gives us a competitive advantage. I remember specifically when he joined Bank One, which I think was 1998 timeframe, on his first day, he left a voicemail for the entire company. And it was honestly kind of a rambling three-minute voicemail. But in it, 
he laid out the tenets by which he was going to lead the bank. And one of the things he said was, we will have a fortress balance sheet. And then I watched him over the next six months take the bank through the discipline of cleaning up its balance sheet, which is painful. That means you're firing customers. That's what that means in banking. That means you've made loans to people who are unlikely to be able to pay them back and you have to get them off your books or you have a weak balance sheet. And I watched him force the company through the discipline of cleaning up its balance sheet so that its assets were all strong assets and would give the bank flexibility. But that work was done long before he faced the next storm. So then when he faces the storm, all that's in place. It sounds like if you were to take the fortress construct, absolutely with balance sheet, but also with what is the fortress customer experience so that my customers want to stay with me. They may not be doing the $5,000 vacation. They may be the $3,000, but they're doing something. Or my leadership clients get that you still need good leaders during downturns. In fact, you need more of them. You may have less money to spend, but you don't go to zero. Right. So you invest thoughtfully around where you can get leverage for your specific industry. That's just the responsible thing to do. And if capital could be a potential risk for you, how do you acquire additional sources of capital? Right now as a company, we're closing some venture debt. We're doing that specifically to strengthen our balance sheet so that we have optionality during a recession that maybe our competitors don't have with some capital in the bank, along with being well-funded from the venture side, we can grow inorganically, not just organically. Why does that matter in a recession? We're 100% confident that there's going to be some companies out there that have really good tech, but don't have capital. And those distress assets are going to be available at a much more attractive price than they would have been even six months ago. Exactly. If I don't have dry powder, that's not an option for me. Let's get the dry powder so when we see a buying opportunity where we can acquire great technology and a great team, we can bring them on board. What else do we tell leaders? We haven't talked about the human side of it, and I think that's important as well. This is a time when empathy is going to be more important than ever and hard to come by because when you're afraid, you're not empathetic. You're worried about yourself. We tend to be selfish. And I don't mean that as a pejorative statement. The chemistry is the chemistry, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, we as people are just bags of chemicals responding to stimuli. We don't like that. We think we're rational, but the science is clear on this. So we have to be honest about that. We are what we are. So to some degree, that takes then the discipline to say, I'm not going to operate from a place of fear, which then gives me access to empathy and to care and to really understand what my people are going through and to help them out of a place of fear. You know, how do you be the calm voice in the room when everybody's afraid? How do you create an atmosphere of possibility facing probability? Part of that for me is truly understanding the physiology overall and my individual and managing it. It's one thing to say, I know when I face this, it's going to be upsetting. It's another to choose to meditate or do yoga or whatever the thing is so that when that happens, I'm able to pull myself out of the drama that I'm experiencing, focus on the vision, and demonstrate empathy that gets my fanny out of the fire. Yes, I agree. And I think it's one of those things where that personal discipline of knowing yourself, if you know 
that your tendency is to respond a certain way and you get into that situation and you know that you're not going to be productive in response to that moment, have the courage to say, I understand what you said. I need some time to process that calmly, respectfully, not from a place of anger, but of a place of self-recognition. That's not the sort of conversation that I can have in the moment. I need a little bit of time to think that through, if that's how you process those things. Other people process through dialogue and are able to spend the emotional content of it. Some people, when they're given a fact, have to act on it immediately. That may be the worst thing. So if you know that the person you're talking to is that sort of a person, predicate the conversation on, I don't need you to act on this. I just want you to think about it. That's respectful to that person and say, I really value how you think. And I think you might be able to add value on this problem. I'm asking you to think about it so that we can talk about it and then come up with a course of action that makes the most sense, right? So there's, I think there's a lot of things that at one level are just empathy, but also give other people access to their best capabilities, right? So know yourself, know others, and then be disciplined about those characteristics. And it is interesting, again, right off the experience of this interaction, the person with whom I was interacting with has a very different style than mine. So mine is, I'm frustrated, and I want to understand why. And some of this could be all about me and nothing about them. And let me not open my mouth and say something that's hurtful. It causes more of a problem. Let me figure myself out. And so part of the conversation was, how do we work through these things together? Because if I call and say, this is what's going on, that immediately sparks an emotional response from someone with whom I work closely and care deeply about. I don't want to create pain for people right? just because I'm cranky. You did something that injured a client, I'm going to create pain. Right. You did something that I disagree with, I might be wrong. Know myself, when do I shut the heck up? Know the other person and the style that is most effective for them and don't create more drama and spin. Because it does seem like there's only a certain amount in the bank account. If I continue to go back and create issues, that's going to be a former colleague soon. Yeah, I think in these moments of high intensity, it's easiest to not assume good intent. And it's maybe at these times when assuming good intent is the most important. Because oftentimes it's a matter of context. And context is shifting rapidly in a time like this, right? So it could be you're operating from a different set of assumptions. We talked about that earlier. The first thing I would explore when I have a strong disagreement with somebody at a moment where maybe something very important is on the line is we may be coming at this from a different point of view, a different context. And that's an easy way to de-emotionalize it. Wait, let's step back. What makes you think that is a very different question than I think you're wrong. How we processed it was what meaning did you make of that thing? So you observe something, I observe something. We had a very different interpretation of the same event. We're both super smart. And we responded rationally and appropriately to the different interpretation that led to, you know what, this is going to happen again. So then you have the opportunity to explore the lenses through Mm -hmm. which you're viewing those sorts of events, which is context. Yeah. Structure is decisive. Right At the end of the day, barring a psychotic break, everybody acts rationally in what they perceive to be the structure they're operating in. Mm-hmm. And if somebody that you know to be rational is acting in a way that you think is irrational, there is a 90 plus percent chance it's context, it's structure. 
Let's expose the loading that we all are bringing to this and figure out if there's value in these two structures. You know, maybe they add value to each other. Maybe they're incompatible. Super important if they're incompatible that you rationalize that. Because I'll tell you, the combination of two incompatible structures is mush and won't end well. you got to pick one and agree to operate from it. In other cases, structures can be combined and be value-added. And the exploration was really valuable. How did you come to that interpretation? How did I come to that interpretation? There's real value in the dissonance. It's just stinking painful. Absolutely, which is why we tend to avoid it. (laughs) It's almost easier to be mad, and it gives you an excuse to exit the situation and or act irrationally. That's easy. And be morally superior in the process. Right, absolutely. (laughs) The hard stuff is the hard work, right? The stepping back and examining the structures that are driving you. To your point, you're both rational, both smart people. If you draw different conclusions, you're probably operating from different structures. Mm -hmm. And we were. It was valuable to process it. For me, the transparency in these conversations, often we're talking philosophically. There's just real stuff. And the more we get into the stress that goes along with this downturn, the more we're needing self-care and willingness to have these early conversations so they don't devolve into, I can't believe you are, you know, fill in the blank. And we live in fiery times. Independent of the recession, we live in fiery times. We have a country that's more politically divided than it has been in some time. I'm not going to say ever because our memories are short. The 70s were very intense, right? And there was a lot of division and there were a lot of symptoms that we see today and are shocked by that also occurred then, right? And you can go back and find other points in time. We're in a fiery time. You know, what is the way through political divide? It's through examining the structures that we're operating from, which is hard. It means sitting down with somebody with whom you vociferously disagree and saying, help me understand why you believe that, because there may be insight in that for me. Mm -hmm. And then honestly engaging in that dialogue. We can do that without agreeing. And to your point, it feels generative Versus the, I think you're wrong. Well, I think you're wrong. Well, that mean, that makes you a terrible <laughs> person. Well, you're more terrible than I am. But the conversation about why do you believe that is generative because it's probably going to add to your belief system. And then when you get the opportunity to share why you believe, it's going to add to theirs. And as always, you know, in a republic like ours or in a company or whatever it might be, there's way more common ground than we perceive. Let's end on that note. Way more common ground and opportunities, even in a downturn. And we need good leaders now. Greg, thank you. This is always delightful. Well, thanks for having me. I always enjoy coming and I appreciate the dialogue. To our listeners, thank you for engaging with us. Please continue to listen, engage with the material, like it, share it, and come back. Mm -hmm.